0: Visit Remax.com or download the Remax app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Based on 2022 BrandSpark American Trust Study. Each office independently owned and operated. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. You have just gained access to an exclusive insider's look at the lives and works of some of your favorite authors, and hear conversations with the world's greatest writers as they discuss their writing lifestyle, creative process, latest work, and behind-the-scenes revelations.
2: Welcome to Dedicated. I'm your host, Doug Brunt. I am thrilled to have with us today Jess Walter. He's the author of The Zero, a National Book Award finalist, Citizen Vince, an Edgar Award winner. And also my first exposure to Jess was about 10 years ago when I read Beautiful Ruins, a novel that charmed the whole world and was on the bestseller list for like a year and a half. Um, His latest work is a collection of short stories called The Angel of Rome. Jess, welcome to the show.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me, Doug.
2: It's great to have you here. And I am I have never been so excited about the
1: cocktail selection of a guest. <laughs> I was going to say you had me at cocktail. I was, uh, um, uh, yeah, that's a brilliant uh, a brilliant addition to the podcast yes, genre. Yes, that's our lure to yeah, get
2: the best authors it, it, in the world onto the show. It, I, I drink Manhattans, and... You have selected the Robert Burns, which yeah. I have never had, and I'm dying to try. Maybe while I fix this, you could tell us a bit about it.
1: Yeah, it's. I think it's an apocryphal story, but supposedly the Bobby Burns is named after the poet Robert Burns, um, and uh, and so that literary. Uh, history made me want to try one. And now it's become my test of a bartender because so few bartenders know what it is. And then you have to have this special ingredient that you're pouring now, Benedictine, which is um, uh, a liqueur, a kind of brandy that um, takes the place of bitters in what would normally be a Manhattan. And I think the Benedictine is made to sort of smooth out the Earthy, peaty quality of the Scotch, Um, but I like it. It's a nice, creamy um, uh, kind of uh, Manhattan drink, and for me, it's like I said, it's if if a bartender knows how to make it, I have endless trust in them. So, and now, now you've gained my trust. Well,
2: uh, don't don't uh, let's not get ahead of ourselves. I am sort of eyeballing this, and I know it's sort of equal parts. Sweet vermouth and scotch with a little Benedictine. That's right. Yeah. Um, so I've got that, and I've made I'm, a million I'm Manhattan. So I think I always we're good
1: go a little here. whiskey heavy myself. Oh, just well, you be, know what? I mean, just just that yeah, up just because yeah. Um, you're drinking this drink because it's a whiskey drink, and um, and the sweetness can get a little cloying sometimes. So yeah. I I think that was a good solid move on your part. Okay. Good. That,
2: we're adjusting in real time. I actually, I've noticed in the many Manhattans that I've made that there's a real range of sweet vermouth. Yeah. And yeah. this one,
1: do you know this one? Yeah, I do. Um, uh, Antica Formula, yeah. Um, That's it, the best one I've found. Is it? Yeah. I, I have I have several at home and then every once in a while I'll, I will um, find myself just going to whatever they happen to have at the grocery store near my house and, and not really noticing the difference. So I should probably pay more attention. <laughs> That you know you can, uh,
2: if you think you can get that on the plane with you, you're welcome to take that one.
1: No, I've seen that. I have. I, in fact, I have a small bottle um, at home. I have a bar in my office and a bar in the house, and the one in the house tends to have the better, uh, the better alcohol in it. Oh, look at that! The lemon twist. That is exactly the right color. It's like fragrant. Yeah, that is how it's supposed to look. Do you have bartending experience?
2: I Out of college, I bartended for a couple years, and now I just, privately at the home, I'm making a martini for Manhattan for my wife. Cheers. 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 Great to see you.
1: Yeah, you too. Oh, that's excellent isn't that good? That is great. Wow, yeah. I love that. Yeah. Yeah, and it's and you can taste the roots of the uh of a Manhattan, but you get that nice scotch yes, underneath. Yes, scotch is coming through. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it makes for a lot of people scotch is too much for them. My wife's not a scotch drinker, but she likes this because, you know, the benedictine and the sweet vermouth kind of cut some of that earthiness. Yeah, so. I've
2: been Getting into scotch, I always thought, you know, 20 years ago, I'm like, my God, I got to save something for old age. I can't start drinking
1: scotch now, <laughs> yeah, but
2: um, yeah. it's happening, I guess. And I'm it's an expensive old. habit,
1: too. <laughs> right. my, my father-in-law took me to a scotch tasting, which um, after three, I had, you know, I couldn't feel my tongue. I was, uh, we had little snacks to eat and, uh, but that was kind of my first exposure. And then we went to um, Scotland. I went to the Edinburgh uh, Book oh. Festival and the Fringe Festival. And there, of course, it's just whiskey back to the home base. Yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) Um, Actually, when I uh, before Beautiful Ruins came out, because part of it is set in the uh, in the Fringe Festival in Edinburgh, and I was at this point in my life where wherever I went, it just showed up in the fiction. And uh, but man, it was yeah, it was really great trying some you know trying Scotch there and in the Mm -hmm. homeland, somebody's homeland, not mine. But yeah. Well,
2: I wanted to uh, to start. In the early days of Jess Walter, you were born in Spokane, Washington, Mm -hmm. first in your family to go to college, I think. Yeah,
1: yeah. First male to graduate high school in my direct line, so just from a real working class background and really smart people, but not college people. And I know
2: there's a story of your family living next door to a drive-in movie theater. Is that that
1: one you could share with us? Yeah, Um, when I was in fifth grade, we lived on a cattle ranch, my grandfather's cattle ranch. My dad commuted 60 miles each way to an aluminum factory and got too much, and so he had to buy a house in the suburbs, and so we brought eight cows with us. We had a little suburban bonanza situation where we cattle ranched in the suburbs. And the biggest place you could find was in this vacant, this house with a vacant field next to a drive-in theater. And I still remember we got there and my dad, we had this sort of flat roof on our garage. And so he put uh, lawn chairs on the on the roof of the garage, and we all climbed up there. but if if you remember what a drive-in theater is like, there's that huge fence and the so the screen, it was like the worst seats in center field at Yankee Stadium. Um, the screen was that far away. And so you're watching this little postage stamp. Um, you can't hear anything and uh, uh, and so the, and then to make matters worse, it was the it was the late 1970s. So the drive-in was showing like, uh, bad news bears. No, no. If only it was showing <laughs> like, uh, um, you know, house of a thousand pleasures. And, um, you know, it was like kind of hard R rated mm. semi porn. And so my dad quickly got us kids off the roof and never put the chairs up there again. But my friend and I built, uh, a, uh, uh, tree fort toward the back of the property, which had slightly better sight lines and got we got binoculars, and we would climb up there and watch movies. And I think it's one of the places I fell in love with stories. I w- would watch. I think how many novels movies. were born out of this and period it, and, of your life. And it was this period of so they would show like a kind of a terrible movie, and then they would show Dog Day Afternoon or, um, uh, y- you know, just this these seventies auteurs, um, Harold and Maude, and. Um, Woody Allen movies. And so alongside the kind of schlock that a drive-in showed, they would always find some way to show something great. And I, yeah, I loved being up there watching movies until in the summer, people would have their windows down. So you could kind of pick up some of the audio, but we've quickly decided we needed to steal a speaker. And so we got some wire and we uh, climbed. We had this tunnel underneath the the big aluminum fence, and we climbed in and we cut a speaker and my friend wired it up and we unspooled the wire and and he's unspooling it. I'm covering it with dirt all the way back through the um, back of the of the drive-in theater up the aluminum fence into our tree fort and we go to make popcorn and watch oh, Blazing Saddles and we're sitting there and um, I look up and there's the theater manager and he's just walking um, and he can see this mound of dirt straight up to, uh, straight up to our, uh, our tree fort. And, uh, so we were arrested and we, and our job for the rest of the summer was to pick up all the trash in the theater. Oh well, that's that <laughs> Which, is so funny. It, it'll, it teaches you everything you need to know about people picking up whatever's in the back row of a drive-in movie theater. So. Oh,
2: there's there's definitely
1: a novel yes, in there too. Yeah, there oh, is. that's
2: right. The drive-in theater is a lost a lost art. I, I try miss to explain
1: those. it to my kids, and they don't. It doesn't even compute. You know, the, it's a,
2: like an adventure within an adventure. You yeah, gotta, it makes
1: no sense. You'd put people in the trunk, and then you drive in and yeah. uh, and watch it. But yeah, the East Trent Motor Inn. Um, the sign went for sale a while ago, and I I was thinking of buying it. One of those weird nostalgic things, yeah. and then, um, as those pieces of old kitsch do, it went for you know more than I would have paid. Right. Well, you, that's that's when the spouse comes into play to say, "Honey, mm-hmm. no, we don't need." Where that. are we
2: going to hang that? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Spokane, Washington. I I am like Spokane. an Spokane. Spokane. Thank you. Yes, See, See, yes. I was just about to say I am an ignorant New Yorker, so I'm already pronouncing it wrong and proving the point. Yeah. When I looked at that, I thought, okay, probably thirty thousand people, a couple of stoplights. But when I was preparing for this, I looked it up. It's like over two hundred thousand. The metro area is half a million plus. Like you've got 000, rush yeah. hour traffic and the whole thing. It's yeah, a real city. it's
1: you know, I, it's it's kind of an unusual city though because most cities that are two hundred thousand are next to somewhere else. And Spokane is sort of isolated. Spokane, Boise, Idaho, Reno. These are these western mid sized cities that. Mm-hmm. Um, Uh, you know, Spokane was, was this thriving metropolis in in the year 1900 at the turn of the last century and then didn't grow again until recently. Was it like a mining minerals town? It it was timber mining um, and so incredible wealth. So my wife and I just keep buying 110 year old houses um, for numbers that would make New Yorkers burst into tears. And it's one of my favorite things is to just you know, show people around my house and say, "And look, we have an elevator." You know, and uh, in our pool and our tennis yeah, court. exactly. So there was just this amazing housing stock, and because the city didn't really grow again until the early 2000s,
2: and you can't recreate those old houses it's so charming. Do you, got, do you get in yourself into the renovation mode with a um, hammer and I, tools and I, fix them up?
1: Yeah, I pay people to do that. Yeah. Um, yeah. I did uh, our very too. first house. I I decided to, and so it's one of those things where it's like, oh, I should really stain the woodwork around these windows and then you start taking, oh no, the plaster's coming down. So I guess I would take the plaster and oh, now I better roll up the carpets. Oh, now I have to, to stain the wood floors. Oh, now I'm remodeling the whole house, you know? So you just, you pull off one piece of tape and the whole thing. And my editor's calling saying, where the hell is the novel? Yeah, no, no editors were calling then. That was just me doing, uh, bashing things around. But yeah, we, um, we do, we remodel them and try to, you know, try to keep them, you know, the, the... uh, historically accurate and and preserve kind of that period of architecture, but it's uh, yeah I love I love living there and and I I've you know I lived in New York for a while I worked on the zero for you know a month or two work in L A sometimes um, uh, find myself in Europe but it's turned out in my fifties to be this amazing home base and I always thought I would have to leave to become serious about writing and um, I feel. I feel sometimes like some you know 19th century throwback living my whole life in one town. I was a dad at 19 you know I, I feel some sort of like I, like I don't connect with my generation you know yeah. I'm, I'm like a life that, that made sense in the early 1900s or something. Well
2: I want to talk about the earlier days of your writing so before you were before the editors were calling and, and writing the novels, you, your roots are really in journalism and i i was uh i have not read in contempt mm-hmm. your 1996 yeah. effort there with christopher darden who was on the the prosecution team yeah. for the oj simpson case and uh it's funny speaking of different generations i'm watching the people versus oj simpson with our kids,
1: oh, and right. they have
2: no idea. It's so funny. These wow. All these things are in the category for us of I remember where
1: I was when. Yeah. They're like,
2: what the hell are you talking about? Like, I never heard of
1: them. Is that the the ESPN documentary or the, the miniseries? It's the miniseries oh, yeah, with Travolta right. and yeah. Sterling K. Brown played Ooh, Christopher Darden. played Chris so Yeah. Perfectly. So how did you get
2: hooked up with Christopher Darden?
1: So my first book had come out, and I, I had always wanted to write books, and journalism was kind of the root that a blue-collar teenage father could take, uh, um, you know, to support myself, put myself through school. And then once I had a chance, um, with my first book, which was about Ruby Ridge. So my editor asked if I would be interested in ghostwriting and I was so new to publishing. I didn't know what ghostwriting was. And then when she sort of explained it to me, I said, well, no, I want my name on the book. Otherwise, why would I do it? And, um, so I met, went and met with Chris and we just sort of clicked. We both love basketball, um, we, uh, you know, he had come from a family of seven and, you know, was another first generation college student, very working class. And so we, we just kind of hit it off. And then I was so taken by the position he was in, this um, prosecutor who had, you know, worked so hard to put bad cops away and to represent people, um, you know, to represent his community. And now he's prosecuting a black icon mm-hmm. and unfairly being called a traitor to his people or something. And I, I just, it was just such a fascinating, novelistic character to find your yeah. way to. You know, really bright guy, terrific writer himself. And so I moved on to his couch and uh, in Carson, and we just wrote the book together. And And he must have uh, still been
2: in the throes of it because the book came out in 96. So it's soon after all this. Yeah, he had just
1: left the prosecutor's office and, Mm -hmm. and this was kind of his full-time job was, you know, for that period was writing the book. And because I was coming from journalism, I just really prided myself on um, working fast and um, without uh, you know, pretense, but writing well, I had written the book about Ruby Ridge, which had done really well and been made into a mini series in, uh, six months. And so, um, I felt like we could, you know, we knew the case, we knew, um, sort of, you know, where the book would come in, where the, where these various points would be. So it was, it was actually great fun writing that book with him. And, um, uh, and, and and I know he was proud of it. I was really proud with of what we pulled together and kind of it's the just, furnace. It's just an incredible story. I mean, to that
2: what we were saying story. earlier. It, that's it is. We all knew where we the, the like. My kids don't know about the Ford
1: Bronco and all these yeah.
2: crazy things that were. Yeah, captured the nation for a year plus.
1: And it is hard to explain, but it, but it also explains. You know, I think for a lot of white Americans, especially, it was this moment when they realized their view of law enforcement wasn't shared by by the people in the African American community. They were right. experiencing an entirely different thing in Los Angeles. And what Christopher
2: Darden went through is actually captured. Yeah. I think. I mean, I don't know the whole. You'd know better than I. But the miniseries spent quite a bit of time trying to illustrate yeah. what he was experiencing internally. Yeah, in the prosecutor's office, and then with his community. How, do you Absolutely. know how he felt, or even touched? I wonder how he felt.
1: Sterling K. Brown got great reviews for the performance. Yeah, I think I think he thought he did a great job. I mean, if uh, you know, you always sort of wonder, you know, who, who are they going to cast as me? You know, I hope mm-hmm. it's not Don Knotts. You know, I hope it's uh, <laughs> I hope it's not Dom DeLuise. You know, the right. so I think first of all having a great actor who's handsome and and I but I think he captured Chris's combination, his intelligence maybe his stubbornness, his, this brooding quality. Um, And then more than anything, like you said, he captured that pinch that he was in. You know, I remember, um, you know, we would go to restaurants and, and someone would come up and put their hand on Chris's shoulder and say, you know, welcome him back to the community. And, you know, and it's like, I didn't, he never left the community. You know, he was living in Carson on the edge of Compton when, when O.J. was living up in the Hollywood Hills, you know, he was, um, you know, prosecuting bad cops in a in a unit that was not popular among prosecutors. Mm-hmm. And so the I think for him, the terrible irony of being in this position where he is seen as, um, you know, as an Uncle Tom or something when it was the opposite, you know, yeah. um, I think that was such a painful painful thing. And you see that in Sterling K. Brown's face. You see that in the portrayal. Yeah. He does a great job.
2: Well, what a great experience for you and and for him. He must look back and think, God, this guy I wrote this book with went on to write some of the most dazzling novels (laughs) of our time. But before we get into the dazzling novels, I want to ask you a bit about your process of writing. Mm -hmm. And you really run the gamut of nonfiction fiction and within fiction, short stories and the novel. I know that you are less focused on Writing morning, evening versus seasons. Can you tell us about
1: how you are? Uh, you know, you know that, have like a seasonal vibe. It's also adapted for me too. I, you know, when I had little kids, I wrote at night, and I would be sort of a binge writer. If if I got into the flow, I would just stay up as go late as life. I had to and go as long as I had to. Then I became sort of one of those, you know, irritating five a.m. morning writers. But I I do find a kind of seasonal flow to it that. Um, uh, I, I go to work every day partly because my office is just so comfy and I make myself a latte and grab a cookie. And, uh, an office at, inside of home. Yeah, it's yeah. actually um, a carriage house out behind uh, that is- Damn, you Spokane people. I know, all this I know. Yeah, no, it's, um, yeah, for for what you might get um, like a hot dog stand for in New York, so um, without, the, without the hot dogs, so. Uh, but yeah, I- uh, um, uh, so yeah, I find myself out there most mornings at 5 a.m., 5:30, with a cup of coffee and a cookie. I write for two or three hours, um, and then I go get some exercise. Then I have second breakfast, um, which is usually bacon and eggs or something, and then and then I answer emails. And so that that sort of developed into the process. But um, and I do that seven days a week, mostly 365 days. a How year. are the kids now? Now they're my youngest is just. Uh, got a job as an engineer he just graduated oh, wow. college okay, last year yeah. so i'm done i'm yeah. uh, i'm in full retirement. no diapers no, nothing no yeah. my own i will be the next diapers <laughs> that i change so uh hopefully not anytime soon but yeah so i i think it's the one advantage of being a young dad like i was is yeah. now um you know at a fairly young age i can um i'm i'm in this Great position as a parent where I'm nothing but a really poorly paid consultant. You know, I'm like, right. yeah, that sounds good. You and should the occasional source of cash. I mean, they're kind of all doing okay there. Yeah, That's the great. youngest just graduated with an engineering degree and got a job right away. And so um, uh, I think there's there are those three tethers that every parent has, uh, auto insurance, um, uh, health insurance, and cell phone. And I think I've got two... Tethers to one, and uh, I think I have two tethers to each of to two ski, of my three your kids. Your family ski because of it, the ski yeah. lift tickets could be a fourth tether. Yeah, that's tether. true. Yeah, my son and I ski. Um, my my youngest, he's he's the last skier left. It's too expensive yeah, to yeah. do on your own these no, days. No, lift tickets are. A lot. So
2: do you outline in advance of the books, or do you no? Write in the first I, draft?
1: I I don't outline until I've got a good third or fourth or half of it and then I have to see where I'm going and then it's a kind of rough outline maybe this is going there but I I try to let you know I, uh, I think it's a generational thing I come from this period when you didn't want to be a sellout and you didn't want to be too commercial. Mm -hmm. And I really can't get that out of my mind. And so I think if something is a good commercial idea, I tend to run away from it and go toward. So that's why one of the reasons I think I vary things so much is, Mm -hmm. you know, I've got um, I have too much nirvana in my in my uh, central nervous system. And I keep thinking, you know, that's what they expect you to do: is to write another book set in Italy. You know, yeah. you should uh, you should do this. You should write something totally different. So I tend to just let you know. your agent is like, back to Italy. It's yeah, working, right? Exactly. Yeah. That. So so I tend to just write whatever interests me yeah. and follow that through to the end. And at some point, I have to outline it and figure out what it is and where it's going. Um, and then I, I love
2: that, by the way, the very – and I and I I really admire that. And I have some more questions on that. Mm-hmm that i want to get to but i want to ask just we'll just round out a couple sure. of process questions are you behind a desk can you could you write in a car or a plane if it came to it or do you need to be sort of i can in r- i can
1: write a plane and an airport um, i carry a journal with me everywhere um, which is where everything starts and i have mm-hmm. pocket journals and bigger journals and so I, I think being a reporter i'm just constantly getting it down but yeah. um my my uh, ty- high school typing teacher was my basketball coach, so I type so much faster. I can't even spell unless I get my fingers out. And so, um, I, the real work of writing for me is sitting at the keyboard every day. Interesting. So not yeah.
2: a, I and others I know sometimes are writing out by longhand and only if I. I wonder if that's your journalism background because I'm doing a nonfiction thing where I will yeah. type, but fiction I'm just sort of like a pad of paper and a pen.
1: Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, I, I certainly jot ideas down, bits of conversation, mm-hmm. but. Uh, I don't really feel like I'm at work until my fingers hit the home keys. And then, um, and like I said, sometimes to even speak, I'll have to type um, just cause my mind goes there. I, you know, I yeah. was, uh, I took typing for three years in high school trying to get more playing time on the basketball team and uh, um, it didn't work, but it really helped with my typing, so. So how about uh, connecting with a new idea? Do you start with place or characters or themes? Even that isn't always the same. Sometimes it's mm -hmm. just a voice in my head, you know. Um, I'll hear, you know, when I was uh, was listening, I was thinking about how we don't really listen to the radio the way we used to. And I remember this guy in my hometown with this incredibly deep voice who would, you know, announce um, uh, stock car races and stuff. And he would just say things like, um, uh, you know, uh, we, we're gonna turn the Spokane Coliseum into a giant mud pit. We got monster trucks. We got you know. And I just thought, what would it be like to grow up with that guy? And so sometimes it would just be that voice, and just yeah. start writing that voice. Other times it'll be, it will be a situation. I'll be sitting in a restaurant. And I'll hear an overhear a conversation. Start jotting ideas down. It's what I love about a story collection is yeah. all those random starts. Yeah, you can you can round most of them out with a novel. I mean, a short story—they're like these great dates. You can just go on one. I finish was just going to ask about that because you could spend uh, yeah.
2: a one a twenty-four-hour fever dream with right. one. And whereas so, a novel's and, like, I'm going to be with these guys for three more years. I, I got to choose wisely. No, they're
1: like relationships. You're going to meet their parents. Um, <laughs> right. You know, they're going to—they're going to have a toothbrush in your bathroom for a few years. And so that—that that difference, you know. So I don't choose novels lightly. I I kind of mess around and write. Into some characters and some situations, I get some general idea. My last novel, *The Cold Millions, was, um, you know, set in the late 1800s, early 1900s, and I kind of wanted to write. I had this idea in my mind of the last Western, and so it'll oft often be a kind of note to myself in a journal that mm-hmm. is sort of the overriding idea. With *Beautiful Ruins*, um, I wanted. I I wrote before it was even called *Beautiful Ruins*. I wrote, I just want to write something beautiful. All my novels feel so small and dirty and I just want to write something uh transcendent and beautiful. And did, so did you have a working title prior to Beautiful? Yeah, it Ruins? was called The Hotel Adequate View for Years. Adequate and, View. Yeah, The Hotel Adequate View, which is the name of the hotel in mm-hmm. Beautiful Ruins. And it's one of those ideas I thought was charming and sort of sounded like an indie film, <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, and um and I finished a draft of that in two thousand nine and then uh, it was terrible, and I took two more years to finish it, and um, uh, and then came up with a new title.
2: So I, in also doing my my prep for being with you today, I noticed eight years between Beautiful Ruins and The Cold Millions, which I also wow. read and love. By the way, The Cold Thanks. Millions is one everyone also Thank needs you. to go get. But was that a time of
1: cranking out some short stories, or why the eight years? Um, I think I took a bit of a victory lap. I mean, first I, I. You know, usually a book tour for me would be I'd go to seven cities and then, um, you know, hunker back down and start writing. Mm-hmm. And they people just kept asking. And after years of wanting people to notice your work, I just said yes to every book festival and library. And I went to, um, you know, it was published in Europe, so I got to go do the you know the American and Paris um, uh, and the UK and and th- and so th- I think that was part of it. And then I was writing the short stories that would end up in We Live in Water and some in this new yeah. collection. Um, and I just I th- I had a couple of novels that I was working on, but neither of them really grab grabbed me in that way. And then the the language of the early nineteen hundreds in the Cold Millions. Settled me into that. It was like I want to live in this world of bindlestiffs and, uh, you know, and Pinkertons and. And so, finally, that was the the book that I landed. But I, I certainly didn't think I was going to take eight years. I also spent some time adapting some of my books in Hollywood and writing some right. screenplays. And nothing will waste a novelist's time like Hollywood. Oh, so. I, it's, yeah.
2: yeah. I, uh, I've i heard stories about yeah. that. But uh, the novels that you started and stopped, so you have sort of bottom-drawered a few. Are there things you might return to? Or how, did you go months into it or just
1: little treatments? That's kind of the way I work. And I think I'm sort of unique in that. Um, so... I was writing Citizen Vince and The Zero at the same time. So they came out within a year of each other and one won the Edgar and the next was a National Book Award final. So to my friends, it looked like I was just like, now I'll write this, you know, but I'd been working on both of them uh, back and forth for four or five years. Um, And then the same thing I was I had started. Uh, what became Beautiful Ruins in 1997, so before any of wow. those novels, wow. um, and spent a total of 15 years on it, but four novels came out in those 15 years, five novels. So, so, And then The Cold Millions was an idea I'd had for years, and I'd write a little sentence or two and then mm-hmm. set it down. So my office is sort of chock full of those drawers of... Multitasker. That's yeah, amazing. of ideas, but it's usually that I just write to a dead end. I don't know... Um, it's almost like the story isn't animated yet. Like I've got some drawings, but the drawings aren't moving. And so, uh, rather than throw it away, or um, I try to just go work on something very different, almost like a palate cleanser. Um, and that, and in that way, I find, um, you know, that when I return to those things, it's like the stuff that works is in neon, it just, and the stuff that doesn't, I'm thinking, why did I think that worked? And I don't know if that's, that would work for everyone. And, you know, telling people, yeah, all you have to do is spend 15 years, you know, and in the meantime, write other things is probably not workable advice, but it's been the way that I've worked. So the two novels I'm writing now, I just don't know which one. will cross the finish line. Yeah. will will Rise up and animate itself, you yeah. know. And which one I'll and and it's different. Sometimes it's the characters with beautiful runes. It was the characters I couldn't let go of. With the zero, it was um, sort of the architecture of it, um, the structure of it. With uh, the cold millions, it was really the language. So I I don't know what it is that's going to make it imperative to me. But what, something it's fascinating. What, what I was saying earlier
2: about what I admire in, in your variability and the difference when I'm reading different books by the same author. author I can have a sense that I'm still reading the same author, even if it's set in different decades and countries with you, there is really, for me, no telling. You're you're like this chameleon and it's a real gift because everything down to the cadence of the sentences, it's just totally, you have transformed into something else where there's, you could not possibly know it's the same author behind this, this work.
1: I, I think of myself sometimes like a really good character actor, you know, like, um, uh, like I'm more interested in the character than in some larger novelistic project. Um, So do you have to like get into character as you write the dialogue? I think, I think my journalism background, my strength was my empathy. And so, yeah, I think that I think I find myself drawn to these characters and then kind of walking around in their skin a little bit. Mm -hmm. And, um, uh, and with and that's one of the other things i like about short stories is is you spend less time there mm. um, it can be overwhelming working on a novel you know it's just you, you, you there's nowhere to hide from it and its flaws you know, you take its flaws home with you that's you know it's not one rock in a shoe it's like a shoe full of rocks you know yeah. you go home thinking oh the third chapter doesn't work and why would that character do this and i've got no ending and um you know, that, that, that's a tough thing to live with. And, and and it's kind of a physical thing, writing a novel. You know, it, yeah. it wears you down a little it's a, bit. It's a big whale
2: to, to go it after. But yeah. But one, one thing I've noticed, not only are you able to inhabit different types of characters, but you really can cross into different ages and periods of life. Like with, in The Cold Millions, you, your characters yeah. are boys. And I noticed in some of your short stories, you write about parenting themes and yeah. kids. And your ability to do that and write it is is amazing. And I've noticed... Some writers, or or watching a show, like I would watch The West Wing by Aaron Sorkin, and it's terrific. And I love the first episode, and all the people in the show have this snappy, hilarious sense of humor, and right. so clever. on the fifth by on the fifth episode, I'm like, they all have a snappy sense of humor, <laughs> like how, yeah, how, you know. And so when you're writing a character who's either yeah. less intelligent or uneducated or a child, he shouldn't have a snappy, clever sense right. of humor. And yeah. and uh, yeah. even though it's at a high level it's sort of flat on the high level yeah. and you you are able to move around in a way that few can
1: yeah i i think um, i think it's one of the advantages of the place i live and and being there my whole life and you know being surrounded not by other literary types necessarily but by humans by you know mm-hmm. people of all different stripes and it's it's a difficult thing i've i've taught writing and students want to know: Can I inhabit the voice of a young African American character? Can I inhabit someone who's not my gender? And I always think not only can you, you must, um, you have to, as a fiction writer, create a world as rich as the world is. Is the bar going to be higher? Um, yeah. Uh, and I have, you know, many times someone it's, uh, you know, a woman will say to me, I don't, I didn't believe this character, or I didn't think you got that right. And you have no choice but to listen. But I, I can't imagine not writing those -hmm. characters outside my point of view. And what I tell writers, so I have a story in this new collection called To the Corner with these young corner boys in 2004, um, trying to figure out their own language. And they've just learned, they've just heard on TV, you know, the whole up in the, um, you know, um, up in here, you know, and, and so they're just starting to use that on the corner. And that's not my attempt to portray any vernacular except those four specific boys on that corner mm-hmm. who I was a reading tutor to, um, you know, uh, 18 years ago and the way they spoke and the way language and style and everything seeped in. And mm-hmm. so, um, yeah, I, I, I think if, you know, there's a big Push in publishing now for what's called sensitivity readers, someone to read over your book and tell you and make sure you haven't made some yeah. cancel-worthy mistake. And uh, I understand the impulse, but to me, sensitivity is the only job of mine that matters. Mm-hmm. Um, it, uh, if if I'm not being sensitive to the characters I've created, and, and that doesn't mean making them good or uh, honorable people, it means rendering them as humans that you recognize, then I shouldn't be doing this. And that can be good, bad, or ugly. Hopefully. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's sometimes the harder thing is can you write someone outside your experience and make them as um, banal or as venal or as um, crappy as you would make someone that you know you know, um, someone like yourself. And so that's almost harder sometimes is can you write a villain outside your, um, your ethnicity or your gender or something? Well, I, I, you
2: are a courageous and innovative writer. And I want to tell you a quick story about your influence, which I think is great and will continue to be greater. My mom often sends me books. And she sent me this book called Mercury Pictures Presents by yeah, Anthony Mara, which Anthony I Laura. loved. And it was a terrific, terrific book. Anthony's a wonderful writer, man. And as I was reading it, I was like, this is reminding me a bit of Beautiful Ruins. <laughs> like I can see and feel the influence, which is part of the reason why I love the book. Yeah. And, you know, my mom, my mom sent it, so I just sort of picked it up and started reading it. And yeah. when I finished it, I was like, wow, I really love that. And I, I got to know more about this guy, Anthony Mara. And then I saw you blurbed it on the back. So I am like, oh, clearly Jess Walter is yeah. aware of this book. And, yeah. and, uh, probably aware of his influence on it. But I think that in the way that coaches have a coaching tree, you know, Bobby Knight or Bill Walsh from the San Francisco 49ers, they're these amazing innovative coaches. And they have a team of coaches beneath them who then go on and take those lessons and become Hall of Fame coaches themselves. (laughs) There's a there's sort of a writer's coaching tree of sorts. And I think that you know you're the kind of innovative and courageous writer like every novel is original. Yeah. and at the same time every novel novel is also influenced by other novels yeah but i also feel like there's a spectrum of very innovative writers who are kind of pushing boundaries yeah and at the other end of the spectrum writers who are equally good it's not a quality assessment writers who are very well read and um you know, you can kind of see Fitzgerald in their writing or yeah. something like that. So it's, yeah. it, both, I've loved novels on both ends of that spectrum, but I think you and like Jennifer Regan are oh, innovating no. on the one end yeah. and
1: we'll have this sort of writer's coach's tree of <laughs> uh, people influenced by you. It's so hard for me to imagine, uh, you know, the uh, community college uh, coaches that I've inspired. But, uh, but Tony did tell me that he was thinking, Tony Mara did say, um, you know, I, I, that that beautiful Runes was an influence, and having been influenced myself, the great thing about that is you can't fake it. Though you, um, you can write a pale representation of some other novel, but mm-hmm. you know that book is just animated by his incredible sentences. He writes, he just writes beautifully. And really he, dazzling writing. Yeah, really yeah. dazzling writing, and he has such a sense for. Um, for humans and their delusions too that i i i thought that i thought all three of his books have been terrific the, I,
2: uh, i'll get the other two, like oh, you so i read beautiful ruins and i went went out and got yeah. all the others and, yeah um, uh, with him i'll do yeah, the same
1: oh, what is it uh, something love and techno i can't think of that one and then oh, the titles are escaping me but his his books are really terrific and uh, but I I know I know the influences of mine that I don't know that other readers would necessarily recognize. I, that was my next question. Who's yeah. whose
2: writer's coaching tree would you say you might be on?
1: I mean, living in Spokane and thinking, can I write about this place? And coming across the books of William Kennedy, the Albany Cycle, and especially Ironweed, um, I just it just dazzled me in this way. And the first writer to do that for me was Kurt Vonnegut when I was a kid. I was 13. And I was I was so such a nerdy kid who wanted to be a writer that I was in my middle school library looking to see where my books would go. And so I took Breakfast of Champions home. And on page 13, he said, this is my drawing of an asshole. And it was an asterisk. And I was just like, you know, my mind was blown. You can do that. And um, so I, I almost look back at these moments when certain books um, expanded my thinking of what Mm-hmm. not what fiction could do. Gabriel Garcia Marquez and hundred years of solitude reading that as a 21 year old, 20 uh, year old, just, it was as if writing went from black and white to this vivid color. And, um, and then, you know, later there've been so many writers, Richard Russo's, uh, um, humor in his writing, Percival Everett and his, another writer who just never does the same thing and who is daring in ways that I I couldn't even imagine. Um, Edward P. Jones in The Known World, the way he he just blasts through time and then comes back and uses these nonfiction techniques in a way that um, was kind of thrilling. I, the the number of influences and the ways in which they seep into the work always seems mm-hmm. naked to me like mm-hmm. it, um i'm so surprised that the first sentence of beautiful ruins doesn't seem to everyone like some pale copy of a uh, 100 years of solitude and it's not at all close it's just when i was writing it i was That's thinking the connection yeah are. the you know many years later as he faced the firing squad colonel aureliano Ir- buendia would would recall that distant afternoon when his father took first took him to discover ice and that first sentence was like this the entire novel in my head so i thought can i write a first sentence that is an entire novel um that is that meanders that way that you know that moves through time and so the dying actress arrived in his village the only way one could come directly in a boat that motored up that uh, uh, bumped up against the jetty, and you know that it, it, this, that similar sort of meandering quality—they're they're not at all alike. No one would read that and think, "Oh, he was reading A Hundred Years of Solitude and he was thinking this." But you carry that influence in a way that that, ha- that filters through you, that becomes something original, but very much influenced by another writer's work. Yeah. I think
2: you mentioned earlier that you did a little bit of work on a screenplay treatment for mm-hmm. Beautiful Ruins. It, um, curious a how that's going and b are you are you drawn to writing for film and TV in any way independent of bringing one of your novels to the screen
1: yeah I've I've dabbled since 1997 in Hollywood and have sold things and my my 1st nonfiction book was made into a miniseries uh, the Ruby Ridge book and so I kind of thought oh you just write something and they put it on the screen and um, turns out the exact opposite is true that you write things and they don't you know it's really a that, um, an industry built to not make things and so the things that squeeze through have been through this obstacle course the, of, the funnel of actually yeah, getting made yeah, is just right it does squeeze it down there's so many ways it can get
2: stopped yeah
1: and so i think i had a couple of heartbreaking experiences like every writer and then i started only taking screenwriting jobs that i would write even if it didn't get made because it probably wouldn't get made and so that lesson for me was really valuable um and so I, I, I still take a job every year or two, or I'll go pitch something, or I'll come up with some idea for a TV show. A buddy and I um, uh, have all, always had this this one idea for a TV show, so we've written a pilot. And um, but I, I don't I would never see myself living there mm-hmm. or running a writer's room. Um, the biggest thrill I get by far is when a book shows up and. Uh, before it's in the bookstore, I get to put it on the shelf. Um, and that feels like the continuation of this dream I had as a kid is. And so I make room for it and I take a photo of myself and I slide it onto the oh, shelf. that's a great and tradition. It is. It's such a great tradition. And, the, and to hold a book with my name on it, um, you know, the place I grew up, I didn't know any authors. I didn't think mm-hmm. I would ever know any authors. I didn't think I would be an author. When I took a newspaper job, I figured that's what I would do my whole life and have an unpublished novel in a drawer somewhere.
2: So, well, it's great. You can still feel humbled by that moment because oh, you are, you yeah. know, you're one of the greatest living oh, writers out well, there.
1: That's so nice of you to say, but it, in, in, uh, Spokane, I'm the greatest writer in my house, but, uh, uh, but I, so yeah, I, that, that feeling I've Hollywood is so much in Hollywood. You celebrate when you, when you make the deal, you celebrate when the mm-hmm. check arrives. Um, and I suppose if you win an Academy Award, you celebrate there, but otherwise you, you're you sweating opening night. You know, I, I just saw this movie Bros and they were disappointed because the first two days didn't go well. The great thing about books is they live this long life. Someone hands you a book you had never heard of. And, and, you know, they, they exist in this way that, that goes beyond commerce. And so I love I love them in that way and I uh I know about myself that nothing in screenwriting has ever made me feel the way I do when a box of books arrives and I open them up and take one out. Yeah. So at the end of the
2: show we do a sort of lightning round of fun questions. Oh, but dear. before we get to that I've one last question for you about commercial versus literary and a comment you made earlier because you were saying you shy away from the more commercial ideas and yet you have been such a commercial success. And I I love that you choose to write what you want and you write more literary stuff and then you sell amazingly well. I mean, there's only, you know, you, Amor Tolls sells very well, there are others, but it's not a huge list of people who crush it on the sales charts. Writing the kind of books that you yeah. write, were you surprised by the success? Yeah, of Habit- we were Beautiful all
1: surprised. They, I, I um, they had a little New York book party for me to announce that Beautiful Ruins had hit the bestseller list, and I remember my agent saying, "Sometimes I negotiate a bestseller uh, um, bonus, but it hadn't really occurred to me." You know? and, uh, which was kind of how we all felt, mm-hmm. you know, because I, um, and I had a very nice salesperson. at a publishing house tell me that I write shaggy dogs and um, it's hard to find homes for some of those shaggy dogs. So uh, it's not that I'm not commercial. In fact, I think I write books that appeal to broad swaths of people, but I don't trust the impulse within mm-hmm. myself, I guess. Um, you know, And so I think for myself as a writer, I have to be growing and stretching and doing something that I haven't done before, and that's how I'll become a better writer. How I'll write material that will continue to, to, um, you know, make me uh, change and grow as a writer. And so, so I, th- I think it. You know, I have nothing against selling books. I, mm. uh, it was an incredible surprise, and I would, you know, pick up the New York Times in that year plus that beautiful Runes was on it and just shake my head it's still on it's still there there me, yeah it just yeah. but it was a little like winning a beauty pageant you didn't remember entering you know i i just uh uh it was sort of baffling to me and and but the thing that i love about it is is you develop a readership and people follow your books they look for that wistful sense of humor Mm-hmm. Uh, for the empathy, for... And they even look for things like Spokane, you know. They find, you I know, know there, And so that that's so rewarding to have that, that communication back. Do you the have, classes. like, has it's the years.
2: mayor of Spokane given you the keys to the city, or has there been some local thing for you?
1: So they had a ceremony, uh, and I did get a key to the city, and my phone buzzed, and I looked down, and it was a text from my brother, and he said, how long until you have put that key in your ass? <laughs> <laughs> um, and And... I didn't. Oh, you never did. So,
2: the clock is ticking.
1: The clock is ticking, but I do have a key to my city. That's um, great. Yeah, uh, um, I would love to have the garage door opener to the city, though, too. Just like you know, for the just in case I come home late some night.
2: My brother's a sports writer, or something like that. My brother's right? the sports
1: editor. Sports yeah. editor, okay. and um, and always he's so good at make at reminding me, making me feel down to earth. I had, did this one pretty big event and we went to questions and uh, i didn't even know he was there but he stands up from about five rows back he says, "Yeah, i have a question um if you were trapped on a desert island and you could only have one of your books how would you kill yourself <laughs>
2: <laughs> great to have a little bro- younger brother younger right brother. Yeah, great to have a younger it brother was in the the,
1: it was the best question i've ever had that's so great. um yeah I, I i i so appreciate his uh constant grounding of that's me. right keeps our feet on the ground
2: yeah, yeah. All right. You might want to fortify yourself yeah. with a little I'm Robert Burns cocktail. Yes. These are easy. No fear. Uh, favorite book as a kid when you were younger than 14?
1: Treasure Island.
2: All right. Books on the nightstand now that are not there for
1: purposes of getting a blurb but something you bought oh um i'm i was reading transit of venus by shirley hazard was just incredible um and then what what else am i reading not for blurb um i'm gonna have to just go with that for now i'm trying to see my bedstand, but i'm i'm on the road so right
2: fewest people that every writer even um, even you the esteemed jess walter must everyone has a humbling story about this fewest
1: people ever to attend one of your book events can I tell a quick story about this? Yes. Please. Okay. Uh, I show up. It's in LA. The bookstore owner says we've been having terrible luck with events, and it's raining. I forgot to put you in the in the uh, bullet, and I'm like, oh my god, I'm going to get my first skunking. I'm going to get my first zero because I've had threes, and I mean, I've had some really small numbers. But I walk around the corner, and there are two guys sitting in the in the 18 folding chairs at the bookstore, and I'm like, oh, thank God, there are two guys here. So. My name is Jess Walters, my second novel, Land of the Blind. It's ostensibly a uh, crime novel, but it's really a coming of age. You guys don't speak English, do you? And they just smiled at me. Oh, no way. They were there for an English as a second language class that would go to this bookstore and they would walk around and, and they just saw some chairs and sat down and, but the bookstore owners and back and I'm like, I don't want her to know that I'm skunked, that I have my first zero. So I gave probably the best reading of my life to those guys and, <laughs> and they didn't buy a book, but they applauded afterwards.
2: And No one in the English language heard it. Dang. No, if we could only no. get that back.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, so I guess somewhere between two and zero is the answer. Okay. Yeah. Uh, favorite TV series of late that you would recommend to listeners of late. Um, uh, what we do in the shadows was incredibly funny. Um, uh, vampire show, uh, that, that was, that was great fun to watch.
2: Okay. And all fans of beautiful ruins will want to know your favorite old time Hollywood movie or a few if you have I mean a...
1: that that 70s period is really my favorite but I do love um 60s uh Italian cinema so uh, you know la dolce vita um's incredible um uh I, I don't know if I, I think it's still 60 think I think it's late 60s cool hand luke oh, one yeah, of my favorite right. movies of all There's time. that new uh
2: documentary on on Paul, Paul Newman. Newman yeah, yeah that I, yeah. Ethan Hawke I think is doing it yeah. I just started that at... Let's, yeah, looks good. We we actually got sidetracked from the O.J. Simpson did you <laughs> miniseries uh, yeah. and we're sort of all over the place right now. But yeah, you are. Last question: One piece of good advice could be on
1: anything: parenting, writing, life on the West Coast. One piece of good advice: I um I have this sort of uh, process where I let go of things like balloon. I let them go into the air like balloons, anxieties, grudges, um, and I have to physically do it. Uh, ambition sometimes I think and it and I'll just watch it soar up to the sky until I can't see it anymore and it's wild how often how helpful it is and how often I do it you know um, my expectations of others sometimes and I think to physically have a manifestation of something you're trying to do um, is uh, is a great way to to convince yourself that you've done it.
2: That is a healthy way to live. Thank you. And maybe you know. next time you come back, we'll talk about what some of the grudges might have been about way back when. No grudges left. Oh, they're good. All, they're they're gone. all gone. <laughs> yeah. Jess, thank you so much for
1: coming. Yeah, thank you, thank you, Doug. Cheers. Cheers. If you
2: enjoyed this podcast, please download, rate, subscribe, write a comment. Let me know the authors you want to hear from. I read all the comments. Thank you.